You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, good morning to you all. I'm very glad and honored to be with you for the next four weeks in the dean's class while Andrew is away. And what I, what I thought we would try to do together um, is, is take an aerial view, a kind of Goodyear blimps view of what are known as the writing prophets in the Old Testament. Um, and my idea around this is we have four Sundays together, and there are four sections of writing prophets in the Old Testament. We have Isaiah, we have Jeremiah, we have Ezekiel, and then the minor prophets, which you know are 12 books that are kind of squished into that small section known as the minor prophets, but I'd like to take a kind of aerial view of the entirety of the minor prophets. So what, what I'm going to attempt to do is to just give one Sunday school lesson um, per Sunday to each prophet. So today, for example, we'll spend our time trying to take an aerial view of the book of Isaiah. Um, Next week, we'll try to take an aerial view of Jeremiah. Then we'll turn to Ezekiel. And then our last uh, Sunday together, we'll look at the minor prophets in in total as as a whole. Um, And I I think what this will, my, my hope um, is that this series will allow us to get a sense of, of the forest without getting lost in the trees because it's very easy with the prophets to get lost in the nitty-gritty details. And, and I'll admit to you, I think a, a lot of the fun of engaging the prophetic literature is sort of diving into the, to the details themselves. But this aerial view, I think, will help us have a larger sense of what this big message is that's being given by, by each of these um, so-called writing, writing prophets. So that's, that's my hope and my goal uh, over these next few weeks together. I'm excited about this series um, because I think it's going to allow me also a little bit of an opportunity to, to saturate and to let uh, these prophetic books sort of sit with us a little bit um, and come at them from maybe one angle that gives us a view that we might get, um, we might not have if we were looking at uh, all, all the, 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 the details. So before we dive into Isaiah, let me, uh, let me begin us with a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll turn to Isaiah. So Father, we're grateful that you have given us the opportunity in this context and in this church to study the Bible. Lord, we need words. We, we need our minds and our hearts shaped. We need to know, Lord, how to speak um, wisely and truthfully in a world that's spinning. And I know my basic instinct, and I'm sure many of my friends here, their basic instinct is to turn to their own um, intellectual resources and to the best of their own argumentative skills. But I pray, Father, that you will draw us to your word. You tell us that if we lack wisdom, you will give it to us, and we lack it. And we ask, O oh Lord, that in your revealed will, in your revealed word, that you would speak to us the truth in these old prophets, um, ever gone, so far gone in time, and yet continually present by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we ask that you would do that work in this time together today and as we move forward into our next Sundays together as well. And we give these prayers to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible and you're sitting in your living room or wherever you happen to be, um, grab a Bible and turn to the book of Isaiah. We're going we're gonna to look at this together. Now, admittedly, Isaiah 
is uh, 66 chapters. It's a large book. Um, and in fact, probably the largest in the prophetic uh, material. Um, and if you, and also the principal book in the prophets. That, that's something worth mentioning as we dive into this. Not all orderings of the prophets in the sort of ancient manuscript traditions put Isaiah first. Some put Jeremiah first. But for the most part, Isaiah does come first. And I think Isaiah's signal position in the prophets and the writing prophets gives it a kind of interpretive value for helping us understand and, and giving us a, an interpretive, a reading lens for the rest of the prophetic literature, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the minor prophets. Undoubtedly, um, Isaiah and Isaiah's canonical witness, these 66 chapters, um, plays a kind of pressuring role in the ways in which Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and even, and especially the minor prophets come together and are formed. So Isaiah's got a kind of pressuring presence in the prophetic literature whose, uh, whose voice continues to be heard either by, even by later prophets down the line who hear Isaiah's words and think about them and apply them into new, into new situations. Um, so Isaiah, this 66 chapter whole, does begin in verse 1, or verse 2 I should say, um, telling us the kind of larger theme that's going on in the book, in the book itself. Hear, O heavens, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2 says. Give ear, O earth. These are the first words that Isaiah, that southern prophet in the kingdom of Judah in the 8th century B.C., these are his initial words that we have coming to us out of the prophetic witness. He calls on the heavens, he calls on the earth, the whole of the created order to hear the word that the Lord has spoken. And here's the bad news. The bad news is that the word that the Lord has spoken is against his own children. It's against his people. The northern kingdom, as you know, the kingdom to the north with its principal city of Samaria, um, has known no righteous king in all of its history. And it will come to a swift end when the Assyrians come and march in on Samaria in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom, Judah, where Isaiah is prophesying, is more complicated. Uh, some kings walk in the ways of the Lord. Other kings do not walk in the ways of the Lord. And the, pro the prophets are gifts, they're, they're covenantal gifts that God gives to his people to remind them of God's claim on them and the importance of God's word for the ordering of their thought, their prayers, and their lives. So here you have the prophet bringing a hard word against God's own children, his people, and listen to what he says, and this is a signal word here, children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. That word there, rebelled, becomes a kind of red thread throughout the prophetic witness from the beginning all the way to the end. They have rebelled against me. The ox, the, the prophet says, knows its owner. Donkeys know where to go to, for its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people, and this is a very important turn of phrase, they do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. And if you take your uh, book of Isaiah and turn it all the way to the last chapter, you'll see, I think, something of the intentional shaping of the whole of the prophetic book from the first uh, few verses all the way to the end to show a kind of bookend about this theme of rebellion and God calling his children back to himself in repentance. 
Verse, this is a horrible way in so many, from so many uh, viewpoints to end a book. But listen to how Isaiah ends. They shall go out, Isaiah 66, 24, and look on the dead bodies of the, of the men who have, and here's our word again, who have rebelled against me. Their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So what you have in the book of Isaiah is a challenge to the people of God, the children of God, his own elect um, people, um, to return to him in repentance and, and, to, and to move away from the standpoint of their rebellion, their turning away from God and his authority in their lives back to him. So the prophetic witness is a call to repentance. It's a call to come back to the Lord, filled with warnings and filled with, with um, prophetic words of hope. Now, that's the kind of big sort of beginning and end look at the book of Isaiah. I, I want to enter into Isaiah's larger message um, using uh, a, 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 what I think is a kind of central metaphor in the book of Isaiah um, to help us understand what the prophet is after in all of the large movements of the book. And, and the metaphors that I want to engage are, are the horticultural or plant imagery that you find in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah likes to use plants, like a vineyard, for example, in Isaiah chapter 5. Some of you will know Isaiah 5. You can turn there if you have your, your Bible. Isaiah chapter 5 begins with um, uh, uh, the bard, uh, the campfire singer, saying that he wants to sing a song for his beloved about a vineyard and, and, and about all the energy that went into planting a vineyard to get good grapes out of this vineyard, Pinot Noir grapes, the, the best grapes. And what ends up happening is the vineyard is planted, and instead of yielding choice grapes, it yields, um, and this is my own translation of this here, it yields uh, stink fruit, stink grapes, wild grapes, grapes not fit for making anything that anyone would want to drink. And then the prophet goes on in Isaiah chapter 5 to say, let me tell you what this means. What this means is the Lord is the vintner. He planted you as his choice garden. And yet you have rebelled against him, and instead of producing good, fr good fruit, good wine, you've instead produced a stink fruit. So the, the point is, the, 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 uh, the vineyard imagery, the plant imagery here is a central one in Isaiah chapter 5. And there's another plant image that makes its way really throughout, in, in various key locations throughout the book of Isaiah. And that's the image of the tree, tree imagery, trees growing up trees being cut down, trees being used for idolatrous purposes. And I would say that the whole idea and metaphor of the tree in Isaiah is overwhelmingly negative in its connotation. So I want to begin our time this morning looking at three places in the book of Isaiah where the tree imagery is primarily negative in its connotation. And then we'll end with the one place in Isaiah where the tree imagery is actually um, positively used as a kind of reversal of what's occurred with these other negative uses of the image. So we'll look at this tree image here, and you'll see right here at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 1, Verse 29, that the tree is used as a metaphor for God's judgment. Their coming destruction. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 29. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. Like, now why would they desire oaks? Because the oak tree, uh, the, the groves of trees, the forests were often the places associated with idolatrous worshiping practices. You find that in Hosea and other places in the prophets as well. 
oak trees, grove trees in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the forest. And things happened out there that were an abhorrence to the Lord. So you'll be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall bless for the gardens that you have chose, chosen. In verse 30, for you shall be like an oak. And I want you to keep that image of the oak in your mind. You shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without any water. Strong shall become tender, his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. So you have a sense here of what the imagery is like. Uh, You desired your idolatrous practices that are associated with the oak tree or the forest, but you yourself will become an oak tree that's cut down. You'll be burned together uh, with your own works, and nothing will be able to quench um, the judging activity of God in his cutting down of Israel as an oak tree. We see it elsewhere. Um, Very similarly, at the end of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 13, here again, we see this very similar to Isaiah 129. In fact, Isaiah 6.13 and Isaiah 129 are feeding on one another. And here in Isaiah 6.13 it says, And though a tenth remain in it, that is in the city of Jerusalem and Judah, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak tree, whose stump remains when it is felled. So what you have here is the idea of God using the tree metaphor, the tree imagery, as an image of his coming judgment against his people. We'll cut down the tree, the tree will be cut down like any other oak tree, and there will just be a stump there that remains as an indication of the judgment that God has leveled against his people. So first you see the cut-down tree, um, the negative metaphor, the cut-down tree in Isaiah, as an indication of God's coming judgment. There's another image, though, in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 33, and this is where we begin to see the cut-down tree or the tree imagery being linked to Israel's arrogance or their pride. The tree equals something lofty and exalted, exalting themselves. And if you see at the end of Isaiah chapter 10, verse 33, it says, Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one, by the holy one. So the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, the God of the armies of the unseen world, will come in and lop off the boughs of the tree with terrifying power. And what's the force here? of this metaphor. The force is that Judah has viewed themselves in both their religious and their political identity as self-exalted and self-assuring, such that they are now a tree that has made themselves large and lofty, which is, again, the metaphor for their own arrogance and their pride. And God says, I will come in and I will will cut you down. Arrogance and pride um, is a major uh, a focus of Isaiah's um, prophetic witness against the people of Judah. And we see this back in Isaiah chapter 2, um, verses 12 through 18. I'll just read this to you. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Now it's worth stopping here for a second 
to see the significance of these terms, these, these uh, words that are being used to describe the proud and the lofty. And the terms that are being used here are lofty and lifted up. They lift up themselves. And for any of you who've done some reading in Isaiah before, that, those terms may begin to sort of set off some bells in your own, in your own mind or your memory. Because when Isaiah the prophet in chapter 6 has his vision of the Lord in the temple, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So the King Uzziah had died. I see the Lord sitting on his throne. The train of his robe is filling the temple. There's smoke. It's the presence of God on earth in the temple. And what are the words that are used by Isaiah the prophet to describe what he sees? I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Exalted and raised are the terms that are used there. And as you trace your way through the book of Isaiah, especially chapter 45 would be another place to go. As you trace your way through the book of Isaiah, those terms, raised and exalted, are only predicated properly and positively on the Lord himself. Only the Lord is the one who is rightly exalted and raised up. He is the one who takes that position among the lofty, among the trees. That is God's position. But whenever humanity raises and exalts themselves, that is exhibit A of their pride, taking the place that is unique to God himself. So there's a pecking order that's very important to the right political and religious viewpoints of ancient Israel, I would say even in our own world as well. And that is, God is seated on his throne, he is high and lifted up, and any activity that we do as human beings that seeks to subvert that or invert that so that humanity takes the place that's proper to God alone, the Bible calls that pride, arrogance, the flip side really of, of idolatry. So the tree is cut down whenever humanity um, raises themselves. Now this is worth talking about as well. Pride and idolatry in the book of Isaiah are flip sides of the same coin. Exalting God after ourselves. um, Shaping God into our own image such that he becomes manageable for us. Um, I've just spent some time this week in the book of Kings and was reading in the section of Kings where you have the split of the southern and the northern kingdom with Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, remaining on the throne in Judah, with Jeroboam, by the promise of God from Ahijah the prophet, going to take the throne in the northern kingdom. And Ahijah the prophet speaks to Jeroboam just like he spoke, just like the words that were spoken by David to Solomon and by Nathan to David even before then. And that is this, if you follow in my ways, I will exalt you. I will establish your throne like I established David's throne. That was the promise that was given to Jeroboam when he was going to the northern kingdom and establishing the kingdom there with the ten tribes of Israel that was much stronger, really, than the kind of backwater southern kingdom of Judah that was still in the south. So Jeroboam had been given the keys to the kingdom, if you will walk in my ways, if you will walk in accord with my teaching. And it doesn't even take a few chapters in the book of Kings and we find Jeroboam saying this. He's reasoning. He's thinking according to his own political logic. 
The people will grow frustrated when they realize that we have no temple here, that the temple is in Judah. And that will cause them to politically align themselves with Rehoboam in the south again. I need to do something crafty. So what am I going to do? And it's almost as if you can't believe what you're reading. Jeroboam says he crafts two golden calves and sets one at the worshiping center at Bethel and sets another at the worshiping center of Dan. And he tells the people this. It's a carbon copy of what Aaron said all the way back in Exodus 32. He tells the people, this is your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Jeroboam had delivered a God who was manageable and visible and really used toward the means of his own political advancement, even if he thought of that God as a representation of Yahweh himself. Pride and idolatry are flip sides of the same coin. And we see that uh, image come out, I think, in a pretty pronounced way in Isaiah chapter 44, which I, I want to read this to you. I think this is, this is, the, this is the prophet uh, being a little snarky, I think. He's, he's, being, he's being a little, a little sarcastic. Um, in verse 13, he says this. Uh, the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil, he shapes it with the planes, and he marks it with a compass. He shapes, so you're thinking, we have a tree that's been cut down. The carpenter uh, shapes it with planes, marks it with a compass, he shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in the house. He then cuts down cedar trees, or he chooses a cypress or an oak tree, and he lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and then the rain nourishes it. And then it becomes, what? Fuel for humanity. He takes a part of that tree, and he warms himself. He kindles a fire. He bakes some bread on it. And he also, from the same tree, makes a god, and he worships it. He makes it an idol, and he falls down before it. So think of the irony here from the prophet. He says, half of the same tree he burns in the fire, over the half he eats meat, he roasts meat and is satisfied, and he warms himself, and he says, aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of that same tree he makes into a god, into an idol. And he falls down to it, and he worships it, and he says, deliver me, for you are my god. So it's remarkably ironic here, right? What is Isaiah the prophet saying? He's saying humanity is deceived by its own best ingenuity. If I can quote the late Ravi Zacharias, Ravi Zacharias said, we sometimes educate ourselves into imbecility. And what does that look like? Well, he cuts down a tree, a cypress tree that's been nourished by the rain that God himself gives. And with half of the cypress tree, he makes a fire and he cooks some meat over it. And with the other half of the same tree, he fashions an idol and he bows down to it and he says, deliver me. There is a certain kind of delusion that comes along with our own pride and idolatrous practice. We become detached from ourselves and we also become detached from reality as it really is in the revealed character of our God. So what you have um, in the book of Isaiah is this overwhelming presentation of the tree image being primarily negative in use. The tree image is used, one, to indicate the coming judgment of God. Number two, the tree image is used to indicate Israel's arrogance 
And the tree image is used to indicate Israel's idolatry. So you see that. All these places that you turn in Isaiah, the tree image is used in a negative way. And that's what makes Isaiah 61 stand out like a sore thumb, like a stark contrast with all the other presentations of the tree imagery in Isaiah. And let me read that to you. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring the gospel, the good news to the poor. He has set me, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So you get a sense here, I mean, this is, you'll remember that Isaiah chapter 61 is the first sermon that we have Jesus preaching in the synagogue. In the synagogue, Jesus opens the scroll to Isaiah 61, he reads it, and he says, that day that you heard prophesied there, I'm now fulfilling. That has all the resonances that we've, we've heard in the Sermon on the Mount as well. The good news to the poor to the brokenhearted, to the meek, to those who see themselves in need. The absolute opposite of those who raise and exalt themselves that we've read about in Isaiah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 10. The Spirit of the Lord is now upon the prophet because the Lord has anointed the prophet to bring the good news to these people, people who recognize themselves as in poverty of spirit, who know what it is to be brokenhearted before the Lord, who know what it is to be in bondage, to be captive to something other than themselves, primarily from the standpoint of Isaiah the prophet, from their own sin and their rebellion. They know what it is to be a captive. And here you have the announcement of the good news and the opening of the prison. Another way of translating that might be the opening of the blind eyes so that they can see for those who have been blinded or those who are bound. Verse 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of the vengeance of our God. And what will God do? Again, you hear the resonances of the Sermon on the Mount here. He will comfort all those who mourn, those who have known sorrow and suffering, those who have known their destitute status before God and before their neighbor. He will comfort those who mourn. He will grant to those who mourn in Zion. He will give them beautiful headdresses instead of ashes. No more the ritual mourning of sitting by the fire and heaping ashes on our head. There'll be a beautiful headdress instead of that. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garments of praise instead of a faint spirit. And here's the phrase. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 21, gives us a kind of foretaste of what we're about to read here in Isaiah 61, where it says this, Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands. Why? So that I might be glorified. Not humanity, not our own political or religious achievements, but God establishes the poor, God establishes the brokenhearted, those who mourn, those who recognize who they really are in light of the glory of God. God announces to those people the good news of the gospel. And what is the result of the good news of of the gospel? True righteousness. 
Righteousness that's been given to them passively because of the work of the suffering servant back in Isaiah 53 who dies and in his own righteous action he makes many righteous. And also the act of righteousness that comes from the recognition of what God has done for us in Jesus that turns to our neighbor. And like Martin Luther said so long ago, we know that God no longer needs our good works, but our neighbors do. True righteousness that stems from the work of God in Jesus for those who recognize themselves as poor in spirit, as mourning, who are in need of comfort. And for those who are in need of comfort and recognize themselves as such, Isaiah promises that those people will hear the gospel and will be established as oaks of true righteousness. The only positive image of the tree in all of Isaiah right here. Oaks of righteousness. Why? For the praise and the glory and the exaltation of the Lord himself. We point away from ourselves to him. We don't become conduits to our own selves, but we become signposts to the glory and the goodness and the truth of God's gospel. So that's Isaiah, I think, in kind of a grand view of it from our Goodyear blimp. The tree image allows us to see what I think is one of, if not the central theme of Isaiah, and that is the recognition of humanity as in rebellion against her God, in need of the saving grace and act of God himself, which he does for us in the suffering servant which then elicits from us a recognition that our righteousness is not our own. It's been given to us by the work, the faithful work of another on our behalf that unleashes us to be conduits of righteousness in the world itself. We're in need. Our world is in need. I feel as if I am in need. We're in need of Oaks of Righteousness in downtown Birmingham, Alabama, in our neighborhoods, in our families. Not oaks that have been established by their own self-assertion and their own ingenuity, but oaks of righteousness that grow and bear fruit in this world because of a recognition of the good news that has been announced to us so that we point away from ourselves to the faithful work of another. Look there. There's the one who's planted me and the one who's grown me, and my whole existence as a tree of his righteousness is to give him glory and to look toward him. So, Lord, we thank you for um, Isaiah, the prophetic witness. so much more in this book. Um, But this tree imagery, Lord, you've left us with, it's beautiful and it's provocative. And it draws us in, Lord, to the dynamics of what you have done for us in Jesus. You've made us righteous in him. It's a gift that we receive. So that, O oh Lord, you would release us to do righteous acts in the world around us. To point to the reality that we live in recognition that you alone, O oh Lord Jesus, are the lofty and the exalted one. We point away to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.